KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. So it's one of those Cinderella stories, in my opinion, in my own personal career, because, you know, you cut a program because you don't believe that they can win. We ended up winning and making it to the conference tournament, and I think we went one and two down in the Clearwater Stadium, which happens to be the Phillies. That was a giant sign-off to Temple University of like, yeah, we could do it. You just didn't believe in us. And our guest this week is Matt Hockenberry. He is a former Temple All-Star baseball player, spent years in the Phillies organization as a pitcher, and now is a pitching coach in the Phillies organization, uh, getting ready to coach the young arms for the Jersey Shore Blue Claws, single-A affiliate of the Phils. And Matt, first of all, thanks for the time. I appreciate you having me on. So let's kind of start. What's the last year been like for you? As we're talking, it's uh, March 11th, and... We were talking off the air, very close to win baseball, shut things and sent you home. COVID-19 obviously has been rough for everybody, but I mean, personally, I, I told you earlier, it's a blessing in disguise. Uh, right before spring training let out, when COVID really became an issue in the country, um, I just bought a truck. I got to spend an entire summer that I've never really been able to do because of being a baseball player and baseball coach. Uh, I got to spend an entire summer with my wife and her family. Uh, I got married in November. So towards the end of the summer, uh, you know, completed another milestone in my life, getting married to a woman of my dreams. And then the the whole winter, I've actually gotten back into the baseball realm, um, not only over Zoom calls with the Phillies organization and making sure we're staying on top of our game digitally, but been helping out at Weber International University. Uh, head coach Colin Martin called on me because it's a local school around here where I'm at down in Florida and asked me if I wanted to come help out with, you know, some weighted ball stuff that I've learned through the Phillies organization. And I've been doing that for the last, since probably September. So September, October, November, December, January, February, and now we're in March. I've uh, been grinding with the NAIA school and getting ready to go back to spring training. So let's talk about your journey in baseball. You grew up in the Hanover area. I should say an area I'm very familiar with. My first radio job was in Hanover, and I remember calling games at your high school, Southwestern, in the Mustang Corral, but that's for a different story. But uh, what was your first baseball memory? How early did the game, uh, did you did you gravitate to the game? My dad put a baseball in my hand, I think, when I was three years old, and I was throwing it around the living room with at my brother Mark. I always liked to used to pick on him a lot, but played Little League. I grew up in a really tight-knit town called Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, and uh, played with a lot of guys that we had played together every single year, and it wasn't just baseball. It was multiple sports. I mean, most of the kids that I grew up with, we played basketball, football, baseball. Every single season, every single year, a really, really tight-knit group. And then after my freshman year of high school at Waynesboro, my dad accepted a new position with a hospital in Hanover. So we ended up moving an hour east, and it was like a whole new experience. And when I first got there, I actually went to go look at the basketball program. Uh, I was very, very, very acclimated with basketball, especially because my brother Mark, 13 months younger than me, he's six foot eight. He grew really, really quick. So I always had taller competition to make my game better. One time he dunked on me, and I told him, don't you ever do that again just because we're blood. And I think I softened him up a little bit doing that. But 
actually wasn't going to play baseball when I got to Southwestern. I just wanted to focus on basketball. I thought that was kind of like my calling card. My math teacher ended up being our head, uh, head baseball coach, and I had heard that from the former principal that was there, but I didn't really pay attention to it. So when I first entered Mike Resitar's math class, he had an icebreaker where he had the students write down their best academic or athletic accomplishment. So I had wrote down that I'd thrown a no-hitter my freshman year uh, at Waynesboro against Central Dolphin East. And I went about my day, and the next day, Coach Restar came up, and he was like, hey, you play baseball. I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. Like, I pitch, I hit, I, you know, do whatever's needed, but not really sure if I want to play. And he pretty much put a stops to that thought process and uh, had me come out with the rest of the team in a little fall ball uh, introduction, just kind of like pickup games in the fall at the high school field. And the first thing I did was got on the mound and started pitching and Restar liked what he saw. And so did Coach Wilson and all those other guys and got acclimated with those teammates and had a lot of fun with those guys. And my high school career, even though now it seems kind of like not blurry, but you don't really remember the big games there other than us going to the district three finals and the first two rounds of states for the first time in school history. That's when I really started to see that baseball was my calling card, not six foot eight like my brother Mark. So I realized basketball was going to be a little bit more of a challenge height wise and athleticism wise. So throughout the summers, after the high school season, I was either playing Legion ball with Coach Restar because he had we had our own uh, Legion team. But I also played for a gentleman named Mike Kroniger, who I am in, in debt to a lot because he's one of the guys that helped me get exposed to the scouting world, both professionally and collegiately. And I just remember after my, my sophomore summer, I went down and pitched in a couple showcases with the Mid-Atlantic Rookies, coached by Mike Kroniger, and all of a sudden, there's that July 2nd date that colleges are allowed to start contacting you. And I had like 150 emails from schools from all different levels saying, hey, we want you to come pitch for us. Come check out our school. Some Come check out what we have to offer. So it was a almost like culture shock. I, I never knew that there was that much interest in myself for just being able to throw baseball hard. So I ended up choosing Temple University in the, in the fall of my senior year after another showcase season with the Mid-Atlantic Rookies just because they had paid for pretty much everything. It wasn't too far away from my parents, but it was still far enough to where I felt like I could get out there and be on my own. And then I had my trials and tribulations there. I tell all the guys that I coach, especially now at the college level, like, you know, you can you can call me on whatever whatever you want about my own career. Like you can go look at my stats at Temple. It wasn't really all that that clean and dandy until my senior year. Uh, my pitching coach, Brian Pugh, put a lot of work into me. Um, I know I was a headache a lot to him. Same with Restitar. I mean, pretty much every coach that I've had has done a really good job of keeping my overly confident and kind of testosterone-filled attitude, if you want to put it that way. Try to keep a PG on the air in check. And always striving to make me not only a better pitcher, but a better person. And I can truly say that every coach that I've had has helped me develop in some way, both on and off the field, which helped my introduction into professional baseball, which I think set up the life lessons that I needed to learn and adapt to transition to the coaching side. I want to go back when you you mentioned that day in July when all of a sudden you know the floodgates open. And you get all those emails. Obviously, it wasn't what you were expecting. 
How long did it take you to kind of get your arms around and realize, okay, this is real? It's a lot, I would imagine, overwhelming at first. How long did it take you to kind of get your feet set and go, okay, what's serious interest? What's generic email that's sent to a thousand kids? Where do I want to go? How long was that process? I think just with the overconfident personality that I had, I eliminated everything that wasn't Division One. Uh, that was just my mindset. And when you're growing up in high school and you know you're you're hearing and seeing stuff on TV about all these Division One recruits, Division One commits, Division One prospects, and then potentially professional. I mean, I didn't ever think about giving any D two, D three, NAIA. JUCO schools, any looks just because I had already had my mind set up. But being from Pennsylvania, I actually had never heard about any of the schools that were really on the East Coast, more so in Philadelphia. I had always had my mind set on that I was going to go be a Pittsburgh Panther because my grandparents are from out around the Pittsburgh area. So I had actually taken a visit, a recruiting trip to the University of Pittsburgh, and then there was word on the street that I was going to get an offer. And the recruiting coordinator there at the time eventually had called me and pretty much said like, you know, they're, they were going to go in a different direction. So I was kind of heartbroken. So it really kind of like didn't limit the amount of schools that I had recruiting me. Cause I had a lot of teams from down some, some big teams down South that were offering me anywhere from a roster spot to a 25% scholarship. And then the Northern division one schools were the ones that were coming after me heavily with more scholarship money from the baseball side. Uh, hold myself accountable. The academic side wasn't necessarily my strong suit, not because of intelligence, but because of work ethic. So majority of my scholarship came from just actual baseball money. So I, th- I believe it was later in the summer of 2009 going into the, yeah, going into the fall of 2009. That's when Temple University reached out and they were competing with St. Joe's, Richmond, and a couple other schools and Rob Valley, who was the head coach at the time, had us come take a visit. It was a little bit of a culture shock because I don't think prior to that I had ever been to Philadelphia. So we went and checked out the school and we sat down with my mom and Coach Valley looked at my mom and said, as long as your son commits here, he will never pay a dime for tuition. So on the ride home, I just told my mom, like, hey, you know, I think this is a good experience for me. I think that it's you know definitely a culture shock being from a small town like Hanover, but I think it's a good learning lesson. Um, it'll teach you a lot of life lessons being in a big city like that. And I really like the people that Temple had around there. Like at the time, I really liked Coach Valley, the, the rest of the coaching staff. And Joe Agnello was actually a part of that staff. And now he is the Jersey Shore Blue Claws Academy director. So I stay in touch with Coach Aggie every, uh, every now and then when I'm up there during the season. But yeah, it was a, it was a big, it was just a big adjustment. I think I had already had my mind made up about like what type of school I wanted to go to. And then when I got to Temple my freshman year, I actually didn't like it. A lot of people don't know that other than my teammates. I think it was just a culture shock. I think it was just because I was a younger freshman that was a little bit more combative with the upperclassmen than some of the other guys, just because I had already had my mind made up that I was going to be the best one on the team even though my my stats never really showed that. But then Coach Valley ended up leaving, and Coach Ryan Wheeler had come in my sophomore campaign, and he had recruited me to go to Richmond prior uh, when I was in high school. So I was already familiar with him, and he brought in Coach Brian Pugh, 
who was our pitching coach, and they pretty much just sat me down and said, dude, you're going to be a huge piece to this puzzle, and, you know, this is this is what we're going to work with. Just be coachable and kind of do what we ask, and I guess the rest is kind of history. I mean, I could talk about my career at Temple and all the great teammates that I had and all that other stuff, but I chose Temple because I thought I had the best opportunity there, and it ended up proven to be true. Big key to that as well is my senior year. Skip Wilson was uh, invited pretty much back to be around every single game, and that, that started in 2012 when Coach Wheeler first took the helm back at Temple University out in Ambler. But Skip Wilson had always been there when I was pitching. So he had kind of seen me and he's got, he was there for 40 years. He's had a lot of guys that have developed. I think he's got somewhere around like eight former Temple baseball players that have made it to the major leagues in some capacity. So Skip Wilson put my name out there to Ed Wade, who was former general manager of the Phillies, as well as the Astros. And that's a pretty big name in professional baseball. So when you have him on your back, or at least on your side, helping pass your name along, um, I got a pre-draft workout, and that's the whole shebang of why I got drafted in the ninth round of 2014 after my senior year. And just for those who aren't Skip Wilson, long-time Temple, legendary Temple baseball coach, you talked about your numbers and the senior year, and it is, I mean, the ERA, I think, goes down two runs. Split it in half. Yeah. So what and you mentioned Coach Pugh worked with you. Was it not fundamentals, but technique? Was it from the neck up, how to approach? What was the big change? I think majority of it was the neck up. I thought Brian Pugh did an outstanding job teaching me how to really think on the mound. It's a little bit of like a 50-50, though. Like I give Coach Pugh 50% of the credit, and then I give the other 50% to the, the one pitching coach that I had in the summer of 2013 down in the, the Valley League in Virginia. His name was Blake Maxwell, and he had just gotten released that spring of 2013 from the Red Sox organization, and he threw one inning in, the, in a big league spring training game with the Sox. And he played with a bunch of dudes that are now in the major leagues, which is funny because I'm in that same situation where a bunch of the dudes that I played with in the minor leagues are now having a lot of success in the big leagues. But Blake Maxwell, I guess, gave I my junior year coach Pugh and coach Wheeler asked me to take a different role we had a, a senior that was ahead of me take the Sunday Sunday starting job so that's the third starter in a in a college baseball rotation and I the previous year in my sophomore year I was the number one I was our Friday guy I had a lot of weight on my shoulders was trying to do way too much at times. My junior year, they asked me to take a different role, I think after two or three starts to start out the season. And they asked me to move to the bullpen. My velocity was up. Command was a little down, but I was throwing pretty hard. So they had the theory of almost like a piggyback starter, which is what we do in the minor leagues now. You know, we'll let we'll let the senior start. And if he continues to get us deep into the game, then good, I can come in and close it out if we're winning. If he tends to struggle, I can come in and throw multiple innings almost like a second starter. At first, I fought it, and then I got to that point where it was almost like I don't really care anymore and tried to finish out my season the best that I could. After getting moved out of the starting rotation, I didn't really take anything personal, but when I went down to the Valley League, I had all intentions and mindset of, I'm going to start again. And then my senior year, I'm going to go back and win that Friday job again. So for a lot of people that don't know, Temple ended up cutting their program that very fall. 
So I came off of a really hot summer with Blake Maxwell, who was a guy that had been in the professional organization for seven years with the Red Sox. Ended up not getting re-signed, came and was our pitching coach every day. I mean, he was just giving me the subliminal messages or the verbal messages of, I think you can be a guy that can play at the next level. I think you have the talent. I think you have the confidence. You definitely have the attitude. So I just really worked for him. I asked him a bunch of questions. We talked about delivery stuff. We talked about, you know, shaping different pitches. We talked about pitching in different locations, understanding different swings. And that's one of the first times that I really started to think about not what I'm doing, but what I'm trying to do against the hitter. It wasn't necessarily how I was throwing the ball. It wasn't necessarily how I looked that day, how I felt that day. It was, okay, what are my pitches doing and how am I going to go get guys out? And really reading swings. So I had an, I had a monster summer. Ended up making the all-star team, started the all-star game. And then I finished out that that summer season. I came back to Temple, and in the fall, that's when Coach Pugh and I really, you know, it, it clicked. He sat down and explained to me all the guys that he has worked with, all of the things that those guys have done that have made them successful, that he has helped them move on to professional levels. And then I explained to him with pretty good detail of, you know, what – Blake Maxwell and I worked on all summer and why there was like this trend of I would go away and pitch in the summer and do really well, but then I'd come back to Temple and I wouldn't do so hot. And it had nothing to do with wood metal bats. It was my comfortability and tempo of calling my own game and being able to throw what I was convicted in throwing regardless whatever count it was. So Coach Pew and I came to an agreement that I could throw whatever I wanted and call my own game, but if he would see something, he would you know, signal the catcher or whistle at him or call it, get his attention, and he'd give his suggestion of like, hey, I think you should throw this right now. And it happened so seldom that every time he did end up chiming in, I knew, okay, he sees something, I'm going to be convicted, and I'm going to throw this, and it ended up working out. So not only did my senior year get better the competition got better so we were originally in the atlantic 10 conference and then we moved to the american athletic conference which had bigger name teams you had mm-hmm. cincinnati rutgers uconn university of south florida which i actually pitched against my two brothers-in-law that was one one game that both of them ripped me to the wall a couple times we joke around about it pretty frequently but USF, UCF, Louisville, Houston, and some of those teams were ranked within the top 10. And we ended up making our conference tournament. The league got better, which forced me to be better, which I think I ended up pitching better just because there were better hitters in the box. And I knew I didn't have as much room to make mistakes. I had more time to study these teams. I had more time to really look at what kind of competition I was facing. And then on top of that, when a team shows up in your home stadium and they got a a number in front of their name because they're nationally ranked at the division one level. I mean, that kind of kicks your confidence and adrenaline into overdrive. So I think that was also a little bit easier of an edge to compete against those teams. So that decision that Temple's going to drop baseball. So you find out you still have, you're still going to play out that academic year. If I remember correctly, there wasn't a lot of runway when that decision became public and when like coaches found out it was almost relatively simultaneously you remember how you found out and how did it hit you was it something that had been rumored about at all or were you completely flat-footed like what is going on I'll never forget that day because my roommates and I we were we all walked to class in the morning and grab a coffee 
we'd all split up to go to whatever classes we had that day. And then we got an email from the athletic department. Hey, you got a meeting in this building and these other teams have a meeting in McGonagall Hall. So we ended up going over to the rec pavilion where they had just re-turfed it for like an indoor football facility. And I made a slight comment to my roommate, Adam Dion. Uh, we were just joking around like we always do. And they were asking, like, what do you think this meeting is about? I was like, oh, we'll watch. We'll probably get cut. And we walk in, and it's baseball, softball, men's crew, women's crew, men's track and field, women's track and field, and men's gymnastics. So there were seven teams. And Kevin Clark, who was the athletic director, came right in and wasted no time right behind the, the podium and the microphone and said, you know, Temple University is making a transition and we're deciding to cut uh, athletic teams. And those teams are as follows. And he listed those seven teams that I just named and turned around and walked out of the building. As I've gotten older, I really understand why they did it. Still have questions about it. I understand it's a business decision. There's a monetary value behind what they're doing. They were trying to fund different athletics at Temple, for which they've formally been recognized. But being a 22-year-old male with a lot of hormones running through my body, I was more pissed off at the world than anything. And I think it's because I had taken so much time, effort, and pride in the fact that I was a Temple University baseball player. I was busting my butt in the classroom to make good grades to represent my team well. The the bond that I had with my teammates, I mean, it wasn't just me that took pride in that team. It was right. my entire team. And that was before we even got cut. Like we just, we would roll up against other teams and be like, yeah, we're Temple University and we're the kind of, we're the kind of team that everybody hangs out with everybody every day of the week. And it's not just at practice. It's after class. It's for lunch. It's for breakfast. So there was just a lot of rage because we felt like we were attacked. We felt like there was absolutely no reason for that to be cut. You know, some guys had done their research of what it had taken to fund our baseball program for a full year, plus the scholarships. And just the history. I mean, you got 87 years of Temple baseball history, which which 40-some of those years were at the helm of Skip Wilson, which is a name that I had already dropped earlier as a, a Temple legend. For me, it was almost like a disrespect thing, which I think is why the anger came so violently. So Coach Wheeler and Coach Pugh actually did a really good job. As soon as we found out we were being cut, you got to remember, it's not just us losing potential scholarships and the younger guys, which I felt terrible for, having to find a new place to play. But that's also affecting our coaching staff's lives. I mean, they got families and kids, and all of a sudden, you know, they're not going to have a job after the spring of 2014. Coach Pugh and Coach Wheeler sat us all down and pretty much said like, hey, what are we going to do as a family? What are we going to do as a team? We're going to just fold and everybody goes ahead and get their free transfer and, you know, have at it? Or are we going to try to, you know, duke this thing out? So my next point to this story is that we had six guys leave. Our shortstop went to Old Dominion. We had my roommates, set of twin brothers that I love and respect. They ended up going to North Carolina State. Our closer, my roommate, Adam Dion, ended up going to the University of Pittsburgh and then ended up pitching with the Rangers organization. And then the, the Peterson brothers also got drafted. And I believe it was Eric pitched for the Astros and Pat pitched for the Mariners. So if you think about that, my individual household at Temple was full of professional baseball players, which goes to the, I guess you can attest that to Coach Wheeler, Coach Pugh, 
and all those guys have brought those guys in along with myself and keeping me around and developing me as a player or us as players. And then we had one, one Juco guy that had just come in for the fall that was supposed to be there for the spring. He ended up transferring out to Kentucky. And then we had an outfielder transfer to Hofstra. I know for those guys, it was an even more difficult process because they were doing what was best for their own careers to extend their own careers, to give themselves a chance to be able to go through the draft process and the summer ball process and potentially getting signed by a major league organization. But at the same time, they were leaving the one team that was getting ready to just go to absolute war just because they cut our program. Kudos to those guys. I think they all made the right decision. I know my roommates had struggled with that, and I had talked to them pretty pretty prevalently about do what's best for you. Like, it's really easy to convince guys, don't leave, don't leave. We got a whole season to play. We're doing this for the Band of Brothers, which is what we call it ourselves. But, uh, yeah, I encourage them to do what's best for them because I know what I would have done. I mean, it was my senior year, and I had gotten a couple calls and had a couple offers, especially from former pitching coach Blake Maxwell, about coming down and pitching for him for one semester. And then I could go back to Temple to finish my degree. But I, I couldn't do it. I already had too much time and investment in Temple. And I realized even if I didn't get drafted, finish out your last season, have a blast doing it and get your degree. What's the worst that happens? You walk away with a four-year degree from a school that paid for pretty much your whole education. So we ended up playing and I believe we had only 27 guys on our roster. I don't know if that's a hard or soft number there, but I know that we did not have a full roster. And I thought Coach Pugh and Coach Wheeler, I've done other phone calls and interviews, but, you know, I can't give those guys enough credit to the fact that, you know, they played our best guys on the weekends when the games mattered and it was conference. And then the guys that were younger or the guys that were not as skilled or talented played every midweek game to give our starters for the weekends a blow. And it's funny because by the end of the season, you could have called on any name in that lineup and somebody was getting in the conference game and contributing in some way, shape or form. You know, so there were a lot of good things that Coach Pugh and Coach Wheeler and all those other guys, Coach Small, set up our players to thrive and develop and gave us that environment of just go have fun and go ball out for our last season. So it's one of those Cinderella stories, in my opinion, it just in my own personal career, because, you know, you cut a program because you don't believe that they can win. So we ended up winning and making it to the conference tournament. And I think we went one and two down in the Clearwater Stadium which happens to be the Phillies, you know, so that was a giant sign off to Temple University of like, yeah, we could do it. You just didn't believe in us at the time. And then you see your starting pitcher, your Friday guy go get drafted in the ninth round higher than anybody else that was on that team and higher than some of the better arms, in my opinion, that were in the same league that I was pitching it. I mean, there were, there were a couple big names. Like we, you had the, uh, Nick Birdie from Louisville. You had Kyle Funkhauser from Louisville. You had Eric Skoglin from UCF. You had my brother-in-law, Levi Borders. He was the catcher for USF. And his younger brother, Luke, first baseman for USF, for DH. You know, there were some big names in that league that I ended up getting drafted ahead of. I will say part of that was the help of Eddie Wade and Skip Wilson, but it was also just the year that I had put up. I like to brag about myself, but there were still a lot of things that I did not do well that season. Like, obviously, the USF game, my brothers-in-law just absolutely tattooed me along with the rest of their lineup. Uh, so I did not give our Temple University team a chance to win that day. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a Cinderella story. And I think, like I said earlier, 
Coach Pugh, Coach Wheeler, my teammates, Coach Small, helped me just grow as a person on the field, which helped me off the field. So that way, when I made it to professional baseball, I had a chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove. I had an organization to pitch for, and it wasn't just the Phillies. It was, I'm representing 87 years of Temple University history that just got cut. And I made my track throughout the minor leagues. And then two months after I got released, I got asked to be a pitching coach. And I said, absolutely. So <laughs> we can move on to that whenever, whenever you're ready. <laughs> Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Jersey Shore Blue Claws pitching coach, Matt Hockenberry, right after this. Hey, everybody, it's Cherry Gregg here. You may know me around town as KYW News Radio's community affairs reporter, but every week I produce and host Flashpoint, a podcast where we highlight the hot topics in Philadelphia, local newsmakers, and changemakers burning things up in our region. From gerrymandering to gender equality and policing in schools, we'll walk you through the flames on Flashpoint. It's available wherever you downloaded this podcast that you're listening to now. So subscribe. Thanks so much. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week is Matt Hockenberry, pitching coach for the Jersey Shore Blue Claws in the Phillies minor league system, also a former Temple Owl. I want to talk about the how was the transition to pro baseball for you? I mean, obviously you've got the confidence, and numbers were, were good. Did you feel comfortable right away? Was there a little bit of, whoa, okay, these guys are bigger, faster, stronger than I'm used to? Or how much did that year against American Athletic Conference competition maybe help bridge that gap? I think it was a, it was like the best of both worlds. It was extremely positive, but also extremely negative. I know that being the Friday guy at Temple and being able to have my like pre-start routine and being able to get my adrenaline and mindset and testosterone and everything under control before I took the mound, that was really easy. But when I got to pro ball, it was a completely different story. It was, I never knew when I was going to pitch because I got moved to the bullpen just because I was a senior sign. That's how that works. I took the opportunity, so I wasn't complaining about it at all. Right after I got drafted, we went down for a two-week mini camp. There were some big names there. Aaron Nola got drafted with him. Brandon Liebrandt, Reese Hoskins, Austin Davis. You know, there's plenty of dudes that I got drafted with that are now thriving in the big leagues, and I'm super happy for those guys. But, you know, you're surrounded by a lot of really good talent. It's not just, hey, you're the in a Division One school, you're the best player from every high school. Like, everybody on your team is the best player in their high school. Then you go to professional baseball where you're the best player, period, from whatever school, high school, international, wherever you came from, you are the best at what you do. So I got moved to the bullpen. And after that two-week mini camp, I stayed back and pitched in one rookie league game. And I started thinking like, okay, wait a minute. I just got drafted in the ninth round. I'm almost 23 years old. Why am I still in the rookie league when everybody else I got drafted with went up to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which was a short season other than Aaron Nola because he was our first rounder. And that put a chip on my shoulder. Why am I not going with the rest of those guys? Well, come to find out, I pitched in one rookie league game. I, you know, I think I walked a guy, but I struck out five. And me not thinking like these are equivalent to high school hitters. These are young, raw, talented players. So I'm on top of the world. I just struck out five dudes. And then the next day, Roley DeArmas, who was our director and manager in 
the rookie league at the time called me and said, Hey, you're going to Lakewood, pack your stuff. So I ended up jumping the short season that I was mad about for not going to, to go to low A with Greg Leg and uh, Les Lancaster as our pitching coach. And I'm surrounded by a team full of absolute studs that for the first time I saw what it takes to thrive in professional baseball, which is like a little bit of selfishness because it's all about how well you perform as an individual, but at the same time, how well you can individually perform to help your team win. So I'm surrounded by, I can name drop a bunch of guys that have made it to the big leagues off of that team. And I also don't throw the hardest anymore. So it's a little bit of a culture shock there. Of, hey, I'm throwing 92, 93, 94, but I got guys in the bullpen sitting next to me that are throwing 97, 98, 99, 100. So I ended up getting rocked. In that league, my first year, I think I had a 9.22 ERA. I threw in 10 games, gave up 14 runs and 13 in the third innings. And six of those outings out of the 10, I gave up zero runs. So it wasn't like I pitched bad all the time. There were just four games where I just happened to be the guy that volunteered to go in the game and give it up. So I ended up getting sent down to this short season where my mindset was like, hey, I'm going there anyway. So I got sent down. That's where I met Aaron Fultz, who I give a majority of my professional development credit to. He pitched in the big leagues for parts of eight years. So once I met Fultzy, he did the same thing Blake Maxwell did, Coach Pugh did, Mike Restitar, my high school coach did, which was really just gripped onto my mentality and taught me how to think, taught me how to uh, be more mature and act more as a professional and how to really think about closing out ball games. So Fultzy pretty much turned me into a minor league closer where it doesn't matter if we were winning by three runs or less, or if it was just the end of the game and we needed to make sure it was a win. Cause I think I finished like 40 or 50 some games in my minor league career, even though I only notched 28 saves. So I was always thrown in the ninth inning. So he did a really good job of teaching me how to get the last three outs of the baseball game, which are arguably the most important outs in any baseball game, especially when it comes to winning and losing. Yeah. So then I fell in love with the, you know, the personality stuff that comes with being the psychotic closer that comes in and just wants to blow up everybody, blow up their hands, blow up their knuckles, pitch inside hard, but pitch inside enough to effectively pitch away so that nobody beats you over the fence, how to spin breaking balls in different counts, try to develop a couple different pitches. But the personality stuff, I mean, there was there was at one point in time I had a skin-tight mohawk that ended up getting long enough to where it could touch like the, t- the top of my scaps if I pinched them. 2016, pretty much same same story. I was working out of the back end of the bullpen with pretty good pitching staff. I had Fulte again that year. And at one point in time, I had actually shaved the Charlie Sheen wild thing lightning bolt in the back of my head. And then I started walking more guys than usual, so I cut it off. <laughs> They always say superstitious things happen to superstitious people. Uh, I don't think I'm superstitious. I just do enjoy routines and realizing when things are going well, keep going with the things that are going well. And if something's not going well, adjust. So my minor league career, you know, definitely saw more of the names that I had faced in the American Athletic Conference. Going back to your point about, you know, those hitters in college helping me develop for professional baseball. But I think the big Biggest thing that I learned in pro ball is that double A guys love the fastball. That's why my ERA was very, very high. 
at the double A level. And for those that don't understand what the minor league grind is all about, the first thing they need to understand is when you finally get to that double A level and above, those players that you see on TV or those players that you read about in the minor leagues, they are the truth. They are really, really good and they will do whatever it takes to survive and make it to the big leagues. I don't want to say that I didn't have that. I think my personal window of opportunity had just shrunk due to age, velocity, pitch type, and really just opportunity of the fact that every year that I was still in the organization, those were more years of them drafting guys that were just as good, if not better than myself, that were younger than me. So there's a lot of spots that needed to be filled. And I was filling one of those for parts of four years in the minor leagues. But eventually, you know, they're going to find somebody that's younger, that's better that's going to take that position. And that's ultimately what happened. Uh, I got released on July 29th of 2017. I showed up to the ball field down in Clearwater in the high A league with Sean Williams and Aaron Fultz as my pitching coach once again. And Fultz worked his butt off to get me back to what I was after going up to double A and kind of getting defeated a little bit. But I showed up to the ballpark and like went through my daily routine, ate lunch, went and did all my arm care stuff, got in a massive lift with our our strength coach at the time and went out to play catch with my roommate, Trevor Betancourt. And next thing I know, Sean Williams is putting his hand on my shoulder and he said, hey, I need to you know, I need to talk to you in my office. So at first I thought I was in trouble. I'm like, wait, what did I do? I didn't, I didn't do anything. So I went in and they said that, you know, it was a very emotional day for them. And it's going to be emotional for me. The Phillies were giving me my release. And two days prior, a good friend, and I'm a big fan of him, J.D. Hammer, who has made it to the Philadelphia Phillies as a reliever. And he's got a great story and great personality and everything. He had gotten traded from the Rockies. And when you're in the minor leagues, you start playing numbers games. Like you start looking around and saying, okay, this guy needs a spot here. You know, who's going up to double A? Who's getting released? Who's getting sent down? Who's going on the DL? So this guy can pitch. So I started playing those numbers games. But again, that that confident personality, I never thought it was going to be me. I was always, you know, in my head thinking, oh, it's going to be this guy or this guy or this guy. This guy's going here. This guy's going down. So it never clicked until Sean Williams and Aaron Fultz sat me down and said, you know, you're getting released. Your numbers in 15 and 16, I mean, you mentioned double A, but the ERA, you know, the saves, the whip, they weren't just good. They were borderline dominant. How hard was it to to deal with? You had had a lot of success and it's all coming to an end. Now, like you said, you did struggle that year, but I guess you just didn't have much rope that as soon as you struggled a little bit, they were done. So my numbers that I had put up in the minor leagues, I really feel are definitely well-deserved. But at the same time, when you have the personality that I had on the mound, which a lot of hitters did not like, other than I could probably name a few that, you know, had my number every now and then. My numbers were a testament to the work that I had put in with Fulte and being able to go out and just command the entire game in the ninth inning. I mean, I did, I did some crazy stuff. Not only did I have the haircut, but... Like I would throw my fastballs and let them rip and try to pop the glove as loud as I could so everybody in the stadium would hear it. And then as soon as my name was called, whenever the manager went out to relieve whoever was pitching to bring me in, or I just started off a clean ninth inning, I would take a dead sprint in honor of Blake Maxwell, who used to do this with the Red Sox. I would go in a full dead sprint from the bullpen, wherever it was, straight to like 15 feet before the mound. 
So as soon as I started sprinting towards the mound, the whole stadium knew I was there for a reason. At least that's what I like to think. But, you know, I went in, did whatever I did with a purpose. And like I said, I developed a lot with Fultz because, you know, I introduced a cutter in 2016 that I could use at any point in time behind in the count, which I am a firm believer. That's why I got a lot of quick outs and did not give up runs. If you go back and look, I think in 2016, out of the bullpen, I didn't give up a run for 39 innings straight. You know, so that that was a tough part of the minor league grind because I was doing so well, but there was no reward for it. It was just, hey, you're just going to keep pitching in these winning games. 2016, I had gone up to fill innings in double A three different times. And every time I went up there with the intention of I'm staying and I'll go up there and pitch and hang out for a day or two. And then I'd fly right back down to Florida and continue to pitch in high A. So again, Given my my credit and kudos to Aaron Fultz, he kept my mind on right. Hey, this is your you're a senior sign. You're an older guy. You have to do this day in and day out until you make it or don't make it to the big leagues. It's not just going to be handed to you. You could go out and give up zero runs the entire season. You're probably staying at this level all year just because of your draft status, because of who you are, because of how hard you throw. You can name anything. There's prospects. I understood that, so I think it was easier for me to eliminate, like, hey, I don't care if I go up because at least I have the opportunity to pitch here. So Fulte did a really good job, and, you know, I don't want to say I was coach-dependent, but it was definitely a different different vibe and different thought process when I went to Double A in 2017 without him. Uh, I felt like I tried to prove too much because I was not pitching when the game mattered. I was not pitching in the ninth inning. I wasn't pitching when I thought I was supposed to be, which was – the prior story, the two years before when I was putting up good numbers. So I tried to do way too much. And then when I came back down to Florida, I think I was a little bit more defeated. I was trying to develop a pitch that I didn't want to throw. I was asked to kind of throw a slider instead of a cutter and a curveball, kind of make a mesh and throw a harder slider. At the time, it was thought that if I threw the slider, it would help my fastball play a little bit better, give it more separation, make me pretty much nastier as a two-pitch guy instead of a three-pitch guy. And I think the biggest thing I learned from that is it wasn't that anybody was wrong. I just wasn't doing what I would do myself. Like, I wasn't pitching as me. I was pitching to be what they wanted me to be. And that's all part of it. Sometimes you have coaches that that ask you to do certain things like that. You either try it and it doesn't work and you make an adjustment or you try it and it works and it sticks. And for me, in the situation that I was with my status, it was a yes, sir. Okay, I, I will do this because I want to continue to have the opportunity to pitch for the Phillies. So moving forward, 2015 and 16, I was just in a really good groove. And then it's funny because in the spring training of 2017, I threw 16 innings um, in spring training for the whole month. There were a couple one or two inning stints, and then there were a couple three and four. I didn't walk anybody. I didn't give up any runs, and I punched out 36 guys uh, between the high A and double A level. And at, at the time, you could, anybody can say, well, it's you know, your spring training hero. Because a lot of guys like me have to show up and ball out in spring training in order to turn some heads. And, you know, when they end up having those conversations of who goes where, you know, there were enough people battling for me because I had performed during camp compared to some of my peers. So I got the opportunity and I don't want to say that I blew it, but I definitely did not pitch up to the standards I had for myself, for Temple, for that history. And 
pretty much for all the people that were pulling for me to do really well. I just didn't hold up my end of the bargain and ended up not pitching as well as I should have in double A. Had that opportunity limited very quickly and really just couldn't find it when I went back down to high A, which, like you said, is a league that I had dominated the year before. The guy had a 1.39 ERA through 53 and a third innings pitch or 56 and a third innings pitch. I just didn't give up any runs that year. So it was tough. And it was a really tough pill to swallow when you feel like you're on top of the world, or at least that's what my mentality was telling me. And then all of a sudden, hey, you're done. Good luck. Figure it out. You're going home. So I ended up flying back to my parents' house. I mean, I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know whether to go start throwing for somebody else. I didn't know if I was going to have another opportunity to throw for other scouts. I didn't know if there was any more baseball opportunity. So that transitions into the conversation of how I started coaching. I built a very solid relationship with our pitching coordinator or director of pitching coordinator now, uh, Rafael Chavez, who is a former major league pitching coach. He's been a pitching coordinator for the Dodgers. He's been a pitching coordinator for the Phillies. He's also coached winter ball leagues in, in Puerto Rico. And the four years that I I was with the Phillies all four years. I did whatever that man asked me. I'm a firm believer. Another reason why I had the opportunity to coach wasn't just because I understood what the Phillies at the time were teaching with the delivery, the pitching mindset, the pitching foundations of what we do as Phillies that make us good. But I had also learned how to speak Spanish. Every year that I was in the minor leagues of those four seasons, I was surrounded by majority Latin American pitchers that were in the bullpen. And as you can tell from this podcast, I like to run my mouth and I like to talk. I like conversation. I like conversing with people and learning. And I had already taken four years of Spanish in high school and four years of Spanish in college. But growing up in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and then transitioning to Philadelphia, there's really nobody there that speaks Spanish. So there's nobody to reinforce it. So I had a lot of really good Latin American buddies that I played with in the minor leagues that have taught me the ins and outs of how to navigate through that language and how to really understand what somebody's trying to say, even if you can't really understand the grammar. So it was actually two months after I gotten released, you know, I'm, I'm up in the air. I'm staying with my parents for a little bit and I'm up in the air about what I want to do with my life. At the time I was getting ready to turn 26 and out of nowhere, Rafael Chavez calls me and I find it very odd yet intriguing because they just let me go. I didn't know if it was like a, Hey, I'm just going to check up on you because I cared about you. So when he called me, he didn't say anything about my career. He didn't say anything about getting released. He didn't say anything about, you know, apologizing that it didn't work out. He just said, Maddie, I think I got a really good opportunity for you. And I want to know if you're interested in coaching. So I said, absolutely. And at the time with my agent, I was getting ready to potentially sign with a couple other teams. I was getting ready for some, some bullpens to solidify those contracts. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let me come down. I, I will interview it. I feel like I owe it to you for what you did for me throughout my minor league career and just the respect and loyalty that he had showed me as a player. So I go down and I interview with all the big wigs that I had been around my four years. So I felt really comfortable right off the bat. The director player development at the time, Joe Jordan. You had Doug Manzalino, who was our field coordinator that I have a lot of respect for. You had Steve Novarita, who's still with the, the Philadelphia Phillies. A lot of respect for that man as well. You had Carlos Arroyo, 
who was at the time our roving pitching coach and Rafael Chavez. So, you know, I'm sitting in elite company of guys that have sent tons of dudes to the major leagues. And, you know, we go throughout the interview process and I'm pretty sure I nailed it because I ended up getting the job four days later. So right after my interview process, I know that there were a lot of really qualified candidates that were, you know, interviewing for the rookie league pitching coach position, but I think just the fact that I had just come off a playing career, I did everything that the organization was already teaching and instilling in all of our pitchers that are anywhere from the rookie leagues to the big leagues. And being a Temple University baseball player and having some Philadelphia roots in my system, I feel like they they thought that there was no better option than, than to get a Philadelphia-bred pitcher. So that started the pretty much the whole trek to where I'm at now, which it just seems like I'm constantly on the rise, but I feel like I'm just constantly becoming a better coach, humbly. Uh, the Phillies have done a really good job with education. Um, it's not just like actual education as in, you know, just tons of learning, but it's biomechanics, it's spin rates, it's a lot of what's going on out of driveline. And for those of your your listeners that don't know what driveline is, it is a gigantic facility based out of Washington that develops a lot of guys that throw hard and stay healthy and have really good spin and can do whatever they want with the baseball. And we've had a lot of really good personnel, I guess, pretty much this whole hiatus. So that's pretty much what we did with the Phillies since we couldn't coach. Uh, we were constantly on phone calls just learning, 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 learning to be the most equipped coaches for any type of background that any of these players are going to throw at us. If you get guys from all different walks of life, you got Venezuelans, you got Colombians, you got Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, you got West Coast Americans, you got East Coast Americans, you got Minnesota Americans that come where they can't get outside for 10 months out of the year. Um, you got your Floridians, Texans, you got people from all over the place. We got a couple, I think we have a, uh, we have a Russian. We have a couple guys from England. We got a couple guys from Taiwan. Everybody comes from different walks of life, but how they train is different based off of how they get ready to come to spring training. And now that we are fully educated, it doesn't matter what these guys bring to us. We have now the equipment, the knowledge, and the mindset of being able to take whatever they do and just continue to make them better. It's not hey, you get here and you've been doing this and now you're going to change to do what we want you to do. We know what they've been doing. We've stayed in contact with those guys. We monitor those guys. And now, whatever they bring to us, I know what you're doing and let's continue to get better. So you get the job with the Phils. You mentioned just two months and obviously you wanted to take the job coaching, but you did have those workouts of other teams or you were ramping up for workouts. Was there any point that first year or so coaching where you started to get that pull, like, hey, you know what? feel pretty good. Still in the game. You know, maybe I should have my agent make a couple calls and see if there's anything out there. Or once you really got waist deep into coaching, were you like, this is where I should be and don't look back? I faced that battle every day of my life. Even just messing around down at Weber International University, I still do a throwing program every day. I still get off the mound and turfs just to mess around and show guys it's not that hard to throw strikes or hit your spots. If I'm being completely transparent, I think about that all the time. And it's not just, you know, there's a movie called The Rookie and, you know, the pitching coach ends up making it to the big leagues. But I have had that thought of, you know, if I did make a comeback and really used all the knowledge I know now as a coach that I didn't know as a player because I was only focused on being a player at the time, would it work? Would I make it to the big leagues? Would I be able to get paid more money? Would I be able to 
provide a better life for my wife and myself and, you know, all that other good stuff. But at the same time, there's nothing I would change when it comes to the coaching world. And I, you know, humbly say, like, obviously, I want to be a big league pitching coach at some point in time in my career. But for me right now, there is no rush. I really enjoy the lower levels. And I I consider myself, like, as a joke, the high A hero. I've had the best of both worlds in high A where I could literally not give up any runs. And then, hey, I could give up a bunch of runs depending on what year you're looking at. But I really enjoy teaching guys how to think, helping them with their deliveries, watching them thrive and watching them have success based off of the work we put in collaboratively. It's not just a, hey, I did this for you and now I'm the best pitching coach. And it's not just, oh, hey, this guy was just this good. You know, I didn't do anything for him. 2019, we had a team that was very, very young. And at the Jersey Shore Blue Claws, formerly Lakewood. And every day I woke up and I was ready to go to work. I was ready to go to war, even though I want to pitch, even though I want to continue to throw, even though I want to go back and play subliminally. I think that's what drives me to be a really good coach because I feel them when they're out there. I know what they're thinking. I know what they feel. I know the nerves. I know when their adrenaline's over pumping. I think I have what we joke around the minor leagues about is have a max feel of when to take a mound visit, whether that's in the middle of an at bat or whether that's like an inning to inning thing, or, you know, Hey, certain runners on base, certain situations, because every pitch they throw, I am living that with them. Even though I'm not the one throwing the ball anymore, that's how my mind works as a coach. And there's been some times where the players have taught me some stuff, like when to not give them too much, when to just, you know, go ahead, go thrive. And if you don't succeed, hey, we'll talk about it later, but go ahead, go do you. And then there's been other guys that have taught me, like other players that have taught me, like, I need to be up their butt every day. I need, I need to be all over them every second of the day and just devote my attention just to them because that's how their personality works. That's how their mind works. That's what they need in order to gain that confidence to go out and have a good day, have a good game or just a good day. So yeah, that's a battle I face every day. I still kind of want to get on the mound and just prove to everybody like, Hey, yeah, look, now I'm more educated. Now I really know what I'm doing, but at the same time, I'm very, very comfortable in the opportunity that the Phillies have given. Favorite playing memory as a pro of your four years in the Phil's organization, pitch a game, a moment in the clubhouse. What would be like the top memory? There are so many good ones. There are so many good ones. I think one of my favorites was uh, I was spring training of, I believe, 2016, playing at the Yankees complex. Prior pitcher ended up walking the bases loaded with no outs. They brought me into the game and our manager, Sean Williams, calls on me. So the Yankees complex is a little bit weirder. You can't just take a dead sprint from the bullpen to the mound because you got to like go through the stands. And I still did it, which turned some heads. But, you know, Sean Williams was always a really, really good manager to me. And he always understood my personality. And he asked me if I was ready to go. And the only thing I said was these hitters are effed. A little bit more explicit language. So he just he like chuckled and threw the ball in my glove and walked off the field. And I punched out the side like one, two, three. Struck out three hitters in a row. Nobody scored. And I knew the game really didn't matter because we were already winning and uh, it's spring training. So wins and losses there really don't matter. It's all about individual performance. But that's just one of the good stories. Uh, Another one, my first year right after the draft, 
I go to Lakewood, get sent back down to the short season, and I pitch on my birthday, which is August 30th. And mom and dad drove two hours north uh, to come watch me pitch. I believe we were playing Connecticut because I remember Ben Verlander was on that squad, who's Justin Verlander's younger brother that I played against not only at Old, Old Dominion University, but then throughout my career in minor leagues. But I ended up throwing four innings that game, and I accidentally gave up the lead. So we tied it, and then we ended up scoring, and I went out and pitched the ninth inning. And I struck out the last hitter, and my adrenaline and personality kind of got the best of me. And I jumped off the mound and pretended to pull out fake pistols out of my pockets and pointed them at the hitter and, like, pretended I was firing them off. (laughs) And I'll never forget, so I walk into the dugout (laughs) after we're all done clapping and shaking hands because we won the game on my birthday, which I thought was awesome. Sean Williams shook my hand, and he said that, that was an outstanding job but that's the first and last time you will ever pull fake pistols out of your pockets on a professional baseball field. I've had, I've had some, some pretty good memories. I think one thing that I've enjoyed more about the professional baseball level than the memories of the good performances or just the teammates that I've had can humbly say that I've been surrounded by some elite company. I mean, I already named off a couple of them that are with the Phillies now, but it's fun it's 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 a really rewarding feeling and it's a really good feeling to know that you're a good dude to your teammates and that regardless of how much money they make or what level they're playing at or the fact that I'm coaching now I mean I still see some of those big league guys hopefully I get to this year before they break camp but there's been a couple of years where the young guys that I'm coaching are watching my every move and when I walk over and see some of the major league pitchers that I had played with, when they come over and give me a big old hug just to catch up and say, like, hey, man, how you doing? Or what, what's going on with life? I mean, Aaron Nola last year was messing around with me because my, my father-in-law is Pat Borders. And, you know, he's a he's a cattleman. He's a rancher. He's a really tough dude, tough as nails. And they always joke. Aaron Nola was joking around with me like, hey, I heard you're on the farm. I heard you're getting married to... Nice little southern girl and looks like you're putting on some farm boy muscle, huh? Like you finally got out of that that chubby phase. And it's just nice when those dudes, big name dudes that have to deal with the media, got to go out and perform every day, got to go out and, you know, be the superstars that they are when they can kind of level with you. And you go back to all the fun, stupid memories that you got in the clubhouse when none of that big fame mattered. And then on top of that, like I said, the younger guys that I'm coaching watch my every move and they see those relationships that I have with some of those big guys. And it's just a rewarding feeling when you know you did something right. Whether or not I made it to the big leagues, I I believe I was a big league teammate. Every guy that I've played with, I've considered family. And it's just been a really, really fun ride throughout this professional career of mine. And for as long as I have this opportunity, that's that's the way it's going to continue to be. Try to be the best teammate and coach that I can be, not only to our other pitching coaches and the organization, but you know, continue to build relationships with the players that I'm coaching, like my pitching coaches did with me, because it works. Whether or not they make it to the big leagues, it works with personal development, on-field development, pitching development, any type of development, really. Just because being a good relationship builder means the world to a lot of people, even when a lot of people don't think it does. Matt Hockenberry, thanks so much for taking the time. This was fun. Hey, I appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Hopefully we'll see you soon. 
And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank our guest, Matt Hockenberry, who is the pitching coach for the single-A Jersey Shore Blue Claws in the Phillies organization. If you like this show and you want to help us out and you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at one-on-one-pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to tune in again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about. Yeah.